Welcome to the uh, Rurantra Radio Podcast, A New Revelation. I'm Jim Watkins. Thank you for joining me and sharing these podcasts with your friends. But I want to talk about something that is in the Urantia book, and it talks about the subject of race and why there are colored races. There's a lot of confusion about race in the world today, about oppression, about inequality, and it permeates pretty much the cultural dialogue at this point. Questions like, are we inherently racist? Do Caucasians oppress people of color? Why was there slavery? So it helps to have context to bring us to a better understanding of how we all got here. And the Arantia book doesn't shy away from this fact, and in fact, broadens our understanding of social development of the different races. So let's talk about why there are colored races. Why did God, why did the Most Highs, why do we have colored races on a world like ours? Paper 64, Section 3, Paragraph 30, There are many good and sufficient reasons for the plan of evolving either three or six colored races on the worlds of space. Though your ancient mortals may not be in a position to fully appreciate these reasons, we would call attention to the following. Number one, variety is indispensable to opportunity for the wide functioning of natural selection, differential survival of superior strains. Number two, two stronger and better races are to be had from the interbreeding of diverse peoples when these different races are carriers of superior inheritance factors. Number three, competition is healthfully stimulated by diversification of races. Number four, differences in status of the races and of groups within each race are essential to the development of human tolerance and altruism. And number five, homogeneity of the human race is not desirable until the peoples of an evolving world attain comparatively high levels of spiritual development. So where did the colored races come from? And when did they arrive? Well, paper 64 Paragraph 5, Section 1 tells us that 500,000 years ago, there was a tribe called the Badanen tribe. They were a superior tribe of the Denosovan extract, probably, or a part of the descendants of the Andonic tribe. And they lived in northwest India, in the highlands, and they became involved in a great racial struggle with other tribes. For more than 100,000 years, no, for 100 years, this relentless warfare raged, and when the long fight was finished, only about 100 families were left. But these survivors were the most intelligent and desirable of all of the then-living descendants of Andon and Fanta. And now among these highland Badanites, there was a new and strange occurrence. A man and a woman living in the northeastern part of the then-inhabited highland region, began suddenly to produce a family of unusually intelligent children. This was the Sangik family, the ancestors of all of the six colored races of Urantia. From paper 64, section 5, paragraph 3, the Sangik children, 19 in number, were not only intelligent above their fellows, but their skins manifested a unique tendency to turn various colors upon exposure to sunlight. Among these 19 children were five red, two orange, four yellow, two green, four blue, and two indigo. These colors became more pronounced 
as the children grew older. And when these youths later mated with their fellow tribesmen, all of their offspring tended toward the skin color of the Sangik parent. These early colored races were extraordinarily tested by the rigors and hardships of the glacial age of their origin. The glacier that was existent at that time was so extensive in Asia that for thousands of years migration to Eastern Asia was cut off. And not until the later retreat of the Mediterranean Sea, consequent upon upon the elevation of Arabia, was it possible for them to reach Africa. So here you have this little group of colored races They're starting to form a little society of a few hundred people, and they start to break off, right? Into you know, they move about. They, as people do, we tend to hold to our own groups. And so, from paper sixty-four, paragraph seven, section two, it says, "Thus it was for almost one hundred thousand years. These races spread out around the foothills and mingled together, more or less." notwithstanding the peculiar but natural antipathy which early manifested itself between the different races. The red man early began to migrate to the northeast, on the heels of the retreating ice, passing around the highlands of India and occupying all of northeastern Asia. They were closely followed by the yellow tribes, who subsequently drove them out of Asia into North America. From paper 64, paragraph 7, section 16. As the Sangeek migrations draw to a close, and this covers a period between the first appearance, which was about half a million years ago, to about 80,000 years ago. As the Sangeek migrations draw to a close, the Yellow Man, Eastern Asia, the Blue Man, migrates to Europe, and the Indigo race has gravitated to Africa. India harbors a blend of the yellow, red, and indigo. A blend of the red and yellow holds the islands of the Asiatic coast. An amalgamated race of rather superior potential occupies the highlands of South America. And there are chapters that deal with how a group of the red man, when they came over the Bering Strait, They continued to migrate more to the south and took over Central and South America. And then about, I don't know, 15,000 years ago, there was a small group of Adamites who managed actually to navigate across the ocean. And they formed the genetic impetus of the later appearing Aztecs and Incas. So it says the pure Andonites continued to live. The Andonites are the original Denosovans, and they live in the extreme northern regions of Europe and in Iceland, Greenland, and northeast North America. So that's how the races dispersed. They started in northwest India 500,000 years ago, all born from one family, a mutation, an evolutionary mutation. And then after, what is it, 100,000 years or so, what does it say? A hundred thousand years, these races coexist, but as they start to grow and the families start to grow, uh, suddenly there's more red and green and yellow and blue and indigo, and they're not getting along so well. 
They have that antipathy toward each other. So they start to explore. And you've got the blue man, which goes to Europe. The red man, which makes his way to North America via Alaska and Canada. Driven out by the Asian, the yellow man, who basically took hold of Asia. And the indigo migrated south and stayed in Africa. And it's an interesting story on how the races dispersed, the Urantia book is telling us. But what about the differences in people in general? On differences, from paper 70, section 8, paragraph 1, it writes, The mental and physical inequality of human beings ensures that social classes will appear. So it's not our races that make us different. It's our mental and physical inequality that ensures social classes will appear. The only worlds without social strata are the most primitive and the most advanced. So in other words, what they're saying is on on other worlds, everybody goes through this period where they have classes of social strata with the accepting of early primitive man and then the most advanced later on during the more enlightened periods of humanity or human life. A dawning civilization has not yet begun the differentiation of social levels, while a world settled in light and life has largely effaced these divisions of mankind, which are so characteristic of all intermediate evolutionary stages. And so here you have it in under 10 minutes, basically the Arantia book's explanation, which you will not hear anywhere else, that actually explains why there are different colored races. And by the way, science has not come to any kind of consensus except environment. You know, there is these, the current theory is that the environment is what created, you know, skin color differentiation. But it's not been proven. And the Arantia book also says, today, at the end of all of this, the interbreeding of the different races early on, we're really left with three primary groups. The Mongoloid, what they call the Negroid, and the Caucasoid. And those are the three primary strains that you can use to determine what the major race groups are in this day. The Caucasians, the Mongoloids, which would be Asian or even North American, and then also uh, African. So those are the three primary races that have survived in the present form and where we are today. And there are even variations within those groups. You know, for example, in, in, in the Middle East, you have a kind of a mix between the blue man and also the red and the yellow from the early days of when these races were together. And then as you move farther south towards Africa, you see remnants of the green and the orange who have long obliterated themselves. And it's interesting on that note because there is still conflict in North Africa to this day. It seems like there's never an end. In fact, there's a mention in, in this section where it talks about how there are actually three different races that controlled Northern Africa, Egypt. Uh, first it was the green, then they were overtaken by the orange, then they fought for 100,000 years and finally obliterated themselves. And then here comes, you know, the indigo. And that's when our written records start to appear and we hear about 
Nehru and some of the Nubian tribes, the early Nubian tribes, the Kush. They are the descendants of the original indigo races that took over Egypt long after the other two races had obliterated themselves. So that's how we get some of the differences. And it's, and it's good to point out here that the blue man and to a certain extent the yellow, so what we would term in the Europeans, the Caucasians, and the Asians, the Chinese, or Oriental as they used to refer to them, both decided to live in the cooler, uh, less temperate climates. For what reason? Well, these are harsher climates, and they 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 in force resilience. They force innovation because you're going to die if you don't have the proper tools to survive the winters. It's a little easier to live in Africa where it's warmer. You're not subject to the yes. Of course, there are droughts. But the harsh, cold winters that last for months or even years don't come in and decimate populations so, as they did in the north. And so you have to be innovative. And that's why I think there's that imbalance between how life evolved in the southern regions of the world versus the, the life that evolved in the northern, more cold extremes. And we see this bear out in the way the development of hand tools evolved much faster in the European areas and certainly in Asia, where we see remnants of tool making going back 200,000 years in some cases, long before modern man showed up. So we take that into consideration and then all of those things about patriarchy and privilege, and you start to understand that it's, it's really more or less... Let's say, let's jump to, you know, the last 1,500 years. So you have these, these groups of people who were living in Europe who developed tools, and they lived in the northern parts of Europe. They developed boating skills. They were sea navigators. And there was innovation. And there was innovation, to be sure, in certain areas of Africa. But think about the landmass of Africa. Africa is the largest continent. It is, in some ways, it is, it's as large as two or three other continents together. And so with this extreme landmass, what, what we're dealing with here are thousands and thousands of tribes, scatterlings of tribes that are spread out over the entire continent. Every hundred miles, a different language. Every hundred miles a different culture, a different religion, different rites, rituals, um, different chiefs. And so there was no cohesion developing among these strands of tribes that were scattered. I mean, how can you come up with any kind of a hope for a civilization when every 30 to 40 to 100 miles you have a completely different dialect? This was the problem in India and why they were able to be subjugated by the British it's easy to subjugate a people when they're all speaking different languages because they cannot coordinate their efforts. This was part of the problem with the Amerinds. By the time the colonial Europeans showed up, they were all speaking a common, or they weren't all speaking a common language, but the British, they came in huge numbers. The French, they came in huge numbers. And it was easy for them to subjugate because the Indians had not yet formed that, that necessary confederation that they needed. 
So it wasn't about white supremacy. It wasn't about patriarchal supremacy. It was about social development, in large part determined by the environment. So this is something that has to be taken into context when you're thinking about racial differences and oppressors. So let's get to the human rights. Oh, and by the way, let me conclude by saying that the reason that the African was so susceptible to being the victims of slavery was, again, because their continent so large, it was impossible for them to have even a cohesive federation of tribes which would coalesce into a government capable of defending itself against the more progressive tribes, the more progressive groups that were coming from Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and certainly Western Europe. The development of tools, uh, government infrastructure, far in advance of what was happening in Africa at that time, 1200 AD, 1400 AD. And so it was easier to, to take advantage of this weakness that the African had, because there was the, essentially there was nobody to protect them. So in, in terms of human rights, from paper 70, and now we're talking about the modern age, and there's some interesting things that the Urantia book shares, because we talk about today our social justice rights, social justice, racial justice, climate justice, you know, gender justice. Paper 70, section 9, paragraph 13, on human rights. When rights are old beyond knowledge of origin, they are often called natural rights. But human rights are not really natural. They are entirely social. They are relative and ever-changing, being no more than the rules of the game. Recognized adjustments of relations governing the ever-changing phenomena of human competition. Few human rights were recognized in the European Middle Ages. Then every man belonged to someone else. And rights were only privileges or favors granted by the state or the church. And the revolt from this error was equally erroneous in that it led to the belief that all men are born equal. The weak and the inferior have always contended for equal rights. They have always insisted that the state compel the strong and superior to supply their wants and otherwise make good those deficiencies, which are all too often the natural result of their own indifference and indolence. Do you see that happening today where people are clamoring for their rights as if they're divine rights, they're rights by heritage? It's an interesting quote, isn't it, from paper 70. The weak and the inferior have always contended for equal rights. They've always insisted that the state compel the strong and superior to supply their wants and otherwise make good those deficiencies, which are all too often the natural result of their own indifference and indolence. Indolence. But this equality ideal is the child of civilization. It is not found in nature. Even culture itself demonstrates conclusively the inherent inequality of men by their very unequal capacity, therefore. Okay, so we're all pretty much inculcated with the notion that every human being is equal. But that's not what the belief system really is. The belief system is that we're all equal to opportunity. Outcome isn't equal, but the opportunity is that we have an equal opportunity to produce an outcome. 
you know, they've taken the equality argument and made it that every human being is equal in capacity, equal in talent, equal in gifts, equal in imagination, equal in skill. If just given the chance, we would all be equal. But the Arantia Revelation is saying that's not the case. The sudden and non-evolutionary realization of supposed natural equality would quickly throw civilized man back to the crude usages of primitive ages. Society cannot offer equal rights to all, but it can promise to administer the varying rights of each with fairness and equity. It is the business and duty of society to provide the child of nature with a fair and peaceful opportunity to pursue self-maintenance participate in self-perpetuation, while at the same time enjoying some measure of self-gratification, the sum of all three constituting human happiness. So those are the thoughts on, one, the origin of race and how we got to where we are today. And two, what about rights? What What are our rights? What are we entitled to? And there's much more in both paper 64 and in paper 70, but I wanted to whet your curiosity in case you haven't perused these various sections because, again, they're very sobering. This idea that we are inherently entitled to certain rights. No, they're rules of the game. They are relative and ever-changing. Rights are no more than the rules of the game, recognized adjustments of relations governing the ever-changing phenomena of human competition. So those are important things to think about and to alleviate, I think, a lot of the tension and the stress. The Arantia book is saying, look, you've got to look at the big picture. To me, the great blessing of the American system is that anybody can come from anywhere and come here and have equal opportunity. And that has always been the case. But as far as rights, it's worth considering this context, isn't it? Hearing all of this conversation going on around me, it gave me pause. And I thought, well, let's go and see what the Arantia Revelators had to say about all this. And there we've done it. I thank you for joining me on this edition of the Arantia Radio podcast of A New Revelation. And I welcome the new listeners that are joining us, I can see. And I want to thank those who taken the opportunity to be kind and drop me a note once in a while. Let me know you're there. and Let me know what's on your mind. My uh, email address, UrantiaBookRadio at gmail.com. UrantiaBookRadio at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you again for joining me on this Urantia podcast of A New Revelation. If you hear the song I sing, you will understand. key to love and fear all in your trembling hand just one key unlocks them both it's there at your Yeah.